Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. We have a great show today because we're talking about a really uh, important concept that does not get as much attention as it should, and this is the notion of consciousness and how does one measure it. One of the chief problems with fitting consciousness or spirituality into the modern scientific worldview is the notion that if you can't measure something, it does not exist. Now, I've never been terribly persuaded by this criticism, as to me, it puts the cart before the horse. It defines reality by the tools of medical of mechanical science, of materialistic science. Doesn't it make sense that we should first try to define reality and then seek ways, including measurement, for how we can understand it? The fact that spirituality does not have a luminosity or consciousness a weight, does that mean really that it doesn't exist? But there's something else about measuring consciousness that is also important that we're going to be touching upon in this show. And that is, in today's age, we are experiencing something that is gaining more widespread attention. In fact, it is a theme of this show, and this is the notion of rising consciousness. But here we confront a similar question. How does one know consciousness is rising? against which benchmarks does one determine whether consciousness is going up, down, or staying the same? And we confront the same question, but perhaps from a different perspective, and that is, can consciousness be measured? Now, today's guest has tackled both of these questions in his new book and throughout his career. The name of the book is The Metrics of Human Consciousness, and my guest is Richard Barrett. He's joined me from the UK. He's an internationally recognized leader on values, culture, and leadership in business and society. He's a fellow of the World Business Academy, a member of the Wisdom Council of the Center for Integral Wisdom, an honorary board member of the Spirit of Humanity Forum, and former values coordinator at the World Bank. Richard, uh, it's great having you. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be with us this morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Philip. Thank you so much. Okay, well, uh, as I said, I thought that this book, The Metrics of Consciousness, of Human Consciousness, is very uh, compelling, and I want to get into it a little bit because it touches upon a lot of topics that those of us in this field uh are concerned with, which is really fitting consciousness into the ways of science. But like anything else, we need to define our terms first. So why don't we start off with the big one, 
uh, and I'm going to give you a tough one to start off the show, which is, what is consciousness to you, and what is this thing that we're measuring? Well, thanks, Philip. Yes, uh, I spent uh, many years of my life uh, thinking about consciousness, and I've developed uh, this model and the tools for measuring consciousness. But um, at the heart of that, this modeling and these tools are this fundamental definition of what consciousness is. And here I'm talking about consciousness as we experience it in our three-dimensional physical world. So I define consciousness as awareness with a purpose. And the purpose of consciousness is is always the same. It's to attain or maintain internal stability and external equilibrium in your framework of existence. Because if you cannot attain or maintain internal stability and external equilibrium in your framework of existence, you just perish. Now, this uh, you disappear, in a sense, from this three-dimensional physical world. Um, and so this definition of consciousness applies just about to everything. Uh, it applies to atoms, it applies to cells, it applies to organisms, it applies to dogs, cats, giraffes, uh, human beings, uh, nations, uh, communities. Because if any one of these is unable to maintain internal stability and external equilibrium in the framework of their existence, they no longer exist. And consciousness is really fundamental for existence. It's fundamental for survival. Yeah, and I, I think that we are just starting to understand this and not understand consciousness, so to speak, but understand the central role it has in who we are in life itself. Now, you said something that I want to uh, drill into a little bit, which is this notion of equilibrium. Because to me, and this, this is not a, a, a topic that to me is readily understandable because it's, it seems like the, the word equilibrium is, is not something that is typically used to, to define or describe our connection to the world. But So let me tell you the way I'm following you here, which is that there has to be a balance between the inner and the outer, or there has to be a, 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 a connection. You have to be um, in tune with the external world, which is really things outside of yourself. You have to be, um, how can I, in balance. It, is, that what you're, is that what you're referring to, some kind of inner connection? Yes, uh, there's an internal aspect, and you're absolutely right. There's an internal, as external aspect. So I can say internal stability and external equilibrium. So let me give you an example. Okay. Um, uh, you know, uh, probably many of our listeners are familiar with the term homeostasis. It comes from biology. Right. But actually, what bio uh, homeostasis is, is simply the body maintaining a state of internal stability no matter what's happening in the external world. So when it gets really hot, we sweat. When it gets really cold, we get goose pimples. Our hairs stand up, and that's meant to, if you're hairy, and of course not everybody's hairy, but uh, what, that's meant to um, uh, increase, uh, retain the heat, and that happens with animals. And so... Um, 
I think it was Antonio Damasio who makes that link between uh, consciousness um, and homeostasis. He says, you know, that, that um, there's an undeniable link between consciousness and homeostasis. Now, so homeostasis is, is maintaining your internal stability no matter what's happening around you. Now, that applies to the body, but it also applies to us emotionally. Um, and it, it can also apply to a community or, or a nation. You know, you can be, uh, when, when, a, when you um, uh, get upset by what's happening around you, you lose that internal stability. Um, when your environment uh, is polluted, you lose external equilibrium. Uh, and so um, it, there's this fine dance in the in evolutionary terms uh, for different species to be, be able to maintain their internal stability and external equilibrium. And of course, many species didn't make it. You know, they 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 weren't able to develop the mental capacities to de handle the increasing complexity in the external framework of existence. Yeah, you know, I, I view your your perspective as deeper than Damasio's. And just just to um, sort of elaborate upon this, I mean, Damasio to me is, is a classic materialistic um, neuroscientist uh, where, in fact, you know, he's one of the leaders, of, I think, of the notion that um, the mind or consciousness emerges from the gray matter of the brain. And it seems to me that you go the opposite direction. You're saying that energy is first. Yes, uh, that is absolutely right. Now, uh, you're, you're correct. Uh, and uh, I think Damasio is closer to um, where we are coming from than many other people, but he's still locked into the academic understanding uh, which uh, has two perspectives to which, which were, I call it the unconscious conspiracy. And, and, and first of all, this unconscious conspiracy looks at the material world and says, that's all it is. Right. Whereas I look at the material world and say, that is a property of our senses. You see, our physical human senses only can only perceive a very small sliver of reality because the reality is lots of frequencies of vibration. And we take those frequencies and interpret them through our senses and and, and science knows that there's a huge range of other frequencies we're just not able to see in our, that energetic world which contain us. So that's, a, that's a one point. Um, and the second point is that, uh, is that the whole academic world um, just will not go near uh, the terms of soul or... Um, of uh, consciousness. Uh, they, they don't understand it and therefore they're not willing to accept it. Despite the fact that um, over 80 or 90 years ago, um, we understood, began to understand the quantum world and, and Einstein said there, there's nothing more true than the fact we live in a four-dimensional energetic continuum. And so, um, you see, that that very idea of living in a quantum energetic world has not 
descended into mainstream biology, neurology, etc., etc. Yeah, well, I, I think that's, that's one of the themes that I have focused on in my own work, and I think that it's always nice to know that I'm not the only one doing this, but I think the truth of the matter is that there's a lot of people going down this road. But one of the, one of the points I want to make here for the listener to underscore, I think, the importance of this particular topic is that if you take two options, option one being the world began with matter and out of matter arose consciousness and then this consciousness sort of goes back, backward, and becomes aware of the world that created it. That's one way of looking at things, and that I think that's the mainstream worldview, believe it or not. But if you look at option two, which is that imagine that energy or consciousness is first, and consciousness is rising to understand the world it's in, I think you, you, you wind up having a much richer, broader perspective. And so that's why I wanted to make that the distinction, Richard, is because I think that even though you may wind up shading to the same place, which is that you have you still have a rise in consciousness, but you wind up with more uh, to me a freer and a more uh, wide open perspective if you start with the consciousness part. And I do think that that's where the, the Vedas uh, are coming from. And you mentioned in your own work that the influence they had on you. So so what can you talk a little bit about your influences? And I just sort of switched over to the, to the Hindu tradition here, but clearly there's a connection here because you make it yourself. Yeah. Um, so let me tackle that in two parts. So let me just, first of all, comment on, you know, which came first. Mm. Well, if you follow the uh, the uh, recognized scientific understanding of the evolution of um, our Earth and the, the universe, um, it all with, began with a big bang, and, and and basically there was energy, and then uh, matter uh, sort of crystallized out of energy, and so energy uh, energy was first, uh, and that's you know that's given and quite accepted so so it's, it's rather strange that then you know if that's the accepted worldview then how have we managed to switch back to this other worldview so so that's one point now let me get to the second point which is um uh the influence of the uh, vedic tradition on my work you know i started thinking about consciousness so way back in the, uh, around 1990 uh, when I was writing a book called A Guide to Liberating Your Soul and I came across the Vedic tradition of different uh, seven levels of consciousness, sleeping, waking, dreaming, and then comes soul consciousness, cosmic consciousness, God consciousness, and unity consciousness. And and I thought that was very interesting. So I, I, I then met the work of uh, Abraham Maslow and I thought well wow you know here you've got this hierarchy of needs but you could switch that hierarchy into consciousness terms in other words people with survival needs operate at survival consciousness people with relationship needs operate at relationship consciousness etc and what I recognized was that Maslow's approach this western approach matched in a sense with the uh, 
uh, Eastern approach uh, from the soul consciousness, cosmic God and unity consciousness point of view, because what what those different levels of consciousness represent was basically what Maslow was talking about in terms of different stages of self-actualization. So I thought by bringing these two these two, the East uh, and West together, you could actually build a model of consciousness that integrated the best of both worlds and give much uh, clearer definition to Maslow's uh, growth stages of development. And then that, that's what I did. And I did that in, um, in around 1995-96 and published uh, my second book, Liberating the Corporate Soul, where I, I showed this model. And not only that, I, I actually recognize that at each stage of these seven stages of consciousness or seven levels of consciousness that there are different values that apply and if you can measure somebody's values you can actually map where they are in consciousness terms so that's how i brought these two concepts together but i actually describe the model in very everyday terminology that anybody can understand and consequently these models and these tools have now become popular all over the world and have been used by thousands of organizations and leaders. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Richard Barrett, the author of the new book, The Metrics of Human Consciousness, and we're talking about how to measure this ephemeral concept of consciousness. And now I wanna I wanna talk a little bit of more about this this method and purpose of measuring consciousness. But before I do that, I just want to say something about the Big Bang. Um, and I do think that, and, and, for, and for those who want to know my views on the Big Bang, read, read the first part of my book, The Collapse of Materialism. But I would part company with anybody who, who would think that that is some kind of uh, accepted um, creation story. It is, it's probably true that it, it's accepted in the mainstream scientific community, but the theory itself has so many holes uh, I think it's going to collapse, um, and we don't have time to get into it right now, but the bottom line is that it is really just a model that they have not proven can actually exist. Um, and But that's a whole other topic, but I just wanted to state my position on that, and that makes me very radical, but my, my uh, purpose is not to be radical, is to be right. So, moving to defining consciousness here. Now, I think one of the most important things here, Richard, is to figure out what scale we're doing this measuring against. Because I do think that there is a lot here, and and folks may may you know think, well, measuring consciousness is this is some kind of touchy feely topic. It really can't be done. You touch upon Maslow, and there's a long tradition of a pretty long tradition of attempts to measure growth spiritual development or or personal development as sort of segues into spiritual development but with regard to consciousness what are we measuring against how do you know that consciousness is is expanding well that's a fundamental question that i had to tackle in in building the model the seven levels model and um you can you can you can tackle that question in different ways, but let me start with the basic, which is, um, uh, it's about how you identify yourself. So 
let me uh, let me uh, say, look, when you're young, um, um, you identify in a sense, in a sense, with your ego, with who, with, with your self, your selfish self, because um, that's who you are. You've nobody else to please, and um, so um, you identify. You have a sense of self, which is you, and it's basically your ego. And so um, then uh, you might find a partner and have a family. And if you continue identifying with yourself and only yourself, you're not going to be in that family very long. So your sense of self expands to include your spouse and your family. And so you've now got an expanded sense of self. and uh, so your identity, in, in a sense, changes. So now when you make decisions, you make them from that expanded sense of identity, not from that separate self sense of identity. Because as I say, if you, you continue to operate from that separate sen- sen- sense of identity, you wouldn't be in your family very long. It would break up. And so you, and now you, 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 know, you, get, you go to work, you get a job, you find a job that you like, and, and where you're which resonates with your values. If you're lucky, you find a work that actually uh, you can focus on, which aligns with your passion. And now you identify uh, identify with that organization. So again, your, your sense of self expands. Um, you may find yourself identifying with your nationality. And so you, 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 your sense of self expands again to include that nation. So whatever, whatever you care about, uh, sorry, whatever you identify with, you care about. And so we have this progression in this expanding sense of self. And so when you reach the higher levels of this uh, consciousness, um, what you care about is humanity and the planet. You see, uh, you've now reached, if we go back to Vedic terminology, um, you've gone past cosmic consciousness into unity consciousness, God consciousness. So you, you begin to recognize yourself as a, uh, an undifferentiated part of the whole, and consequently, uh, you identify with the whole, and that's, you know, that's a really high stage of consciousness. Now, in parallel to this shifting sense of identity, there is another uh, interesting aspect of consciousness, and that is, uh, as each stage in growth of consciousness, you're able to deal with more and more uh, complexity in your world. If you think about the child growing up. The child grows up within the confines of the space of the mother and perhaps the father during the first two years, and then uh, within the family, and then in the peer group at school, and then in their peer group at college or university, their peer group in the or the larger group in their working and uh, working environment. And each stage that you go move through demands that you. Uh, increase the level of complexity of your mind functioning to align with the increase in complexity of the framework of existence that you're in and and, and so uh, so so we've got at least two now two uh, characteristics of expanding consciousness we've got a sense of identity and we've got a complexity of mind and and for me these are two of the basic uh, indicators that we are operating at, we can operate at different levels of consciousness. And and I think that what 
underscores that. And this is extremely important, I think, because it puts sort of meat on the bone with this whole notion of rising consciousness. In other words, it's looking at it through the lens of psychology, sociology, accepted disciplines. To me, the, one of the simplest ways to look at this is just to think about um, the notion of survival and how uh, when if you, the early, early humans and even um, in, in less developed countries, what they're thinking about is where to eat, uh, shelter, um, living, just surviving day to day. There's not a lot of time to be thinking of more global, national, cosmic notions. People are centered on getting to the next day. And I, 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 like, to, I like to think, and I could be wrong here, that one of the reasons why we're having more and more people in our day and age going down this route and being interested in whether it's spirituality, ex expanding consciousness, meditation, yoga, all these, all these kinds of new things, is because we have a, a developing consciousness, but also people are freer. The internet opens up ideas. Uh, we have more people who are well off, who have time to think. And, and so I, I view this, Richard, as all being together. And it's sort of like you have the practical reality, the, you know, the, the reality TV show, and then you have the, the conceptual mapping, which is sort of what, what you're doing um, and others have done. So, so what do you think about that? Did you see this actually happening out in the world? Uh, well, Philip, yeah, not only do I, I've written a whole book about it, another yeah. book called Love, Fear, and the Destiny of Nations, where I, I take this concept that you're actually talking about here, uh, going back to our early ancestors, hunting and gathering, where focusing on basically on survival. And I show that the seven levels model doesn't just apply to human individuals, it applies to the history of the evolution of societies yeah. too. So we can use this model to map personal consciousness, but we can also might use it to map group consciousness, either organizations, communities, or nations. Uh, and we have done, we've mapped the consciousness of 26 nations. And so you're absolutely right. So, you know, the hunting and gathering were focused on, on surviving, and then we got into uh, the when people stopped, uh, you know, moving around and settled in one place and went got into agriculture, then um, they formed larger groups. And so, uh, instead of be being a band of thirty-five focused on surviving, now we're uh, maybe two, three, four, five, six, seven hundred people, maybe thousands in the same tribe, where relationship became fundamentally important for survival and, and for safety. So we moved to the relationship level of consciousness. And then as you move through history, we went into city-states where, where people, uh, people had different uh, metier, they had different uh, responsibilities. And so we, and we got into the realm of kings and queens and emperors where self-esteem 
became critical for survival. So, so what you see here is that we were moving up Maslow's hierarchy here. We're moving up the different levels of consciousness. Um, and then we get to that fourth level, which I call transformation. But, you know, that's the level where we begin to reflect and think about, well, how are we different from our parental and cultural conditioning and of course that corresponds in our society to the to the evolution of democracy which is you know yeah. in historical terms is you know it's like really recent um and so that's where we are um we're beginning some of the world is moving to that fourth stage of consciousness or nations are where they're trying out democracy where we uh, we all become responsible and what happens for, for ourselves are accountable but we also have the freedom that you just spoke about to, to, to follow our own destiny and this is what happened in the Arab Spring you know uh, people had managed to satisfy what Maslow called the deficiency needs which is surviving relationship self-esteem and a sufficient number had that they were now entering the individuating stage of development and thinking about how who they are and how they're different from their background and upbringing and of course they hit against the wall which is the authoritarian regime in which they are uh, compressed or suppressed Right. And we had this with the Berlin Wall. Uh, it's it's happened all over the world at different periods of history. It's ha happening in the Arab world right now. And so so exactly that when you get to that freedom stage, you've satisfied these deficiency needs. Now you want to individuate and find out who you really are. If you're in an authoritarian regime uh, and you appear to be an intellectual, guess what? You get locked up because it's a threat. It's a threat to the, to the regime, which is operating from the third level of consciousness, and you want to move into that fourth level of consciousness. Yeah, and I, I think this is a really helpful way to examine cultures and governments. And I know that Ken Wilber does this, and you're doing it, which is, which is that part of the turmoil, if not, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the word part, but part of the turmoil in our, in our world and the clash of cultures is that we have different sets of people at different stages of consciousness, right? We have, we have different, you have the battle between awareness. And, and now, is, is this something that you would agree with or, or what's your opinion on that? I mean, totally, you know, yeah, totally, yeah, I mean, totally. We've got this all over the world. We've right. got, by nation, you can see the different nations are operating at different levels of consciousness, and you can map them to, to my model. Um, but within the nation, you, you've probably got the full spectrum of possibilities. There will be the people who have managed to do well, and if the country is relatively democratic, they be they will be f feel free to explore the higher dimensions of consciousness. If then if the if the regime is not a free regime, and the and according to the Economic Intelligence Unit, there only are about 26 what they call fully fledged democracies in the world. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're living in one of them, you know you you can be free to explore fully who you are because you have freedom of speech and freedom of thought. Um, so um, what we have is a world which is distributed at different levels of consciousness, and that is what I think creates many of the issues that we have in the world, and is what is preventing 
us uh, collectively from coming to an agreement around issues such as global warming because people are operating coming from different levels of consciousness therefore they value different things and it's only the only the perhaps the the upper few nations that are operating at the higher levels of consciousness that are really saying hey wait a minute everybody listen this is really important um, and of course the other people operating at lower levels of consciousness are saying well that's not what's important to us it's because what's it, the level of consciousness um, or your stage of psychological development you're at determines what you value and of course when you're nation isn't at the higher stage of development, then you value more material things. This is Philip Camello. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm happy to be speaking with Richard Barrett, who's joining us from the UK, the author of the new book, The Metrics of Human Consciousness. And we're talking about how much of the clash of cultures can be attributed to the clash between groups of different stages of consciousness. Now, let me try to, let me give you, a, to me, what's the classic example of this, which is always on the in the newspapers, which is the class between Islam and, and other parts of the world. And, and one of the things that's always struck me about Islam is that the Koran is not only a religious document, but it's also a political document. For, for for Muslims and many and many of them and it it's something that uh, if you take it literal as a, as an unchanging description of culture then you're never really able to move out of that framework and it's to me it's it's always I mean there's a book I think called the clash of civilization um, which is on which is on this very topic uh, that it, to me, that's a that's a shining example of of different levels of consciousness, and it also leads me to one of my favorite questions, which is, do you think that this this rise in consciousness uh, is is a natural process? Or, or, to, or, or to what degree do you believe it's natural as opposed to self-directed? Let me, let me put it that way. Okay, you, you raised a lot of questions I there. So I know, me... I know. I'm being unfair. I'm really, I'm just throwing all this stuff at you because, because, yeah. because yeah, this is raising can, a lot right? of issues. So, so, so take whatever one you want because <laughs> I'm really not being fair because part of, part of this, there's, there's so much here. And frankly, just, just for listeners, what I'm trying to show here, and I think Richard's doing a very good job of it, is that this is not just an academic topic. This is the no. key this is the key thing here. That we're it not is. talking about some esoteric thing that the professors uh, at, at Oxford are are are, are uh, pontificating about. This is something that is describing the the movement of who we are as people. That's that's sort of where I'm that's that's why I am um, drilling into this, but with that segue, Richard, and consider and and hoping that you remembered one part of one of one part of one of my questions, <laughs> why, why don't you comment upon um, sure. th this this notion of whether whether it's natural or or you okay. might want to comment about something else? Go ahead. 
okay so 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 you know the, the quran and the uh, and islam is is a beautiful uh, book and a beautiful way of being and it's only when it gets radicalized yeah. that it becomes destructive and now you can go back you can go back uh, five or six hundred years to the time of the Crusades and you see, had exactly the same thing going on in Christianity and the Bible and the politi politicization of Christianity. So all we're seeing is we're seeing a repeat of the same thing a few hundred years later. So let's just, you know, let's just remember that. That's, that's you know, we're seeing a, a cycle of history. No, that, no, that's a good point. That's a good point. We don't realize that we're all that we're also living history. So that's, yeah, that's a so, good point. Yeah. You know, we think, and so, so what we see is from this perspective, evolution. We're just seeing the same thing happen again, but with a, you know, a different religion, and 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 uh, you know, the vast majority of Muslims are lovely people, and many of whom access these higher levels of consciousness, like Christians can do. Um, but it's when it, when this when religion gets radicalized, um, it it it, it creates all this division um and and that's the issue that's yeah. really the issue and and what, what makes it radicalized is when when it, people view the religion from the perspective of survival and self-esteem from those two two of those first well actually a relationship level two from the when people view their religion through these lenses of the first three levels of consciousness which have to do with self and which have to have to do with rules of survival and have the rules of self-esteem and rules about relationships when you view a religion through that lens it becomes radicalized and and you know and so you see so who is radicalizing i mean you know, the, not the, all of them, but many of the people involved, let's say, in ISIS right now, are, are, are in their teens and 20s. They're young people who've never got yet, haven't got to the individuation stage of their psychological element. They're still at the, what I call the differentiation stage, the self-esteem stage. And so we see this radicalization coming from that segment uh, of uh, that age range, if you like, of um, uh, of the Muslim community. Yeah, so uh, yeah. these are young men yeah. uh, trying to show how great they are and how right they are, and uh, simply they're operating from that third stage of psychological development, which is all about how I differentiate myself from you and which groups I belong to, uh, which are the most powerful and the strongest. This is all self-esteem consciousness uh, right. operating right. through religion right that's exactly that's that's exactly what my point is which is that it is at a lower stage of development but it's it's also it's it's radicalized or it's it's um, it's done with such fervor that moving to the next stage becomes a little bit more difficult because because you've got to you've got to move to the next stage and i'm saying people as a humanity as a whole needs to move beyond the 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 uh, tribal stage or the or the community stage it's like a radical tribe you've got to move to the national and then to the international and then to the global it's and co you know, cosmic etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's why I link that question or that comment with yeah. 
with the notion about whether this is a natural development or, 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 or to what degree it's self-directed. So why don't you address that point? Yeah, it is absolutely a, a natural progression of the evolution of human consciousness because we, you know, we move um, from tribal to ethnocentric. You know, this is we all sort of identify. We're back to the identification, you know, right. uh, topic because ethnocentric is I identify with the people who look like me, talk like me, and wear the same clothes as me, and that's who I identify with, and that's who I care about, and and the rest of you can go to hell because that's what I care about. Right. You know, this this led to the second, first world war and the second world war. Um. So now after that comes world centric, where you say, Hey, wait a minute, I'm a citizen of the planet. I'm a member of all religions. I I choose my identity. In fact, that's what happened to me. You know, I it was about 25 years ago I realized that anything uh, that separated me from the people in the world I had to get rid of. I, I was fortunate. I spent most of my, from my 20s, 30s, and 40s traveling the world, working for the World Bank and working all over the world. And I realized that the people are just not different anywhere. Cultures are different, but the people are not different. Yeah. And so, so I wanted to take all this sense of separation out of my life. So I said, you know, first of all, I'm a citizen of the planet. I'm not British. I'm, I'm not American. I do have an American passport, but I'm not British. I'm not American. Citizen of the planet. I'm a member of all religions. I'm a male. It's obvious, but I want to express the female side of who I am. And then I looked at the racial thing, and I thought, you know, well, I, you know, you could, could call me a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, but really, uh, actually, I'm a soul having a human experience. And as soon as I said that, I realized that that's actually applied to everybody. And so yeah. by by then re-identifying who I am, I, I managed to cut out all sense of separation from everybody else in the world, and and I love that. Yeah, well, I, I love that way of identifying. No, I, I think I think that's great. I mean, and let me let me just sort of capsulize something here that is to me very promising. And for those who've listened to me before, read my book, my blog, etc., I tend to be on the idealistic way of looking at things uh, and so you have to take what I'm going to say with a grain of salt but if this m movement up the 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 Maslow's needs the Barrett uh, uh, metrics of consciousness the seven stages uh, if the rise of consciousness is a natural process then there is hope the question is how how long is it going to get there and by hope and, and the un an underlying hope here is the fact that as we move up those stages we come to a more world-centric cosmic god conscious th this whole thing all the things that the spiritual community at least some of them are talking about and and so so that to me is is why calling this or describing it as a natural process is such a good thing richard because it's something that can't be stopped yeah, I, I agree with that, and that was the that was my perspective in my book, Love, Fear, and the Destiny of Nations. That was exactly so. the perspective I was saying. You know, this this can't be stopped. You know, the question is how much time, right? And 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 and, and to accelerate uh, that time, you have to work at nation by nation because nation creates nations create the cultures that form our beliefs that keep us stuck in these lower levels of consciousness. But if you can uh, break out of the survival relationship and self-esteem needs, 
created by that culture, then you open your mind to a bigger a, a bigger world. So let me give you a very practical example of what I believe is going to happen at some point. It's happened elsewhere, but you know, China's a communist country, but it's been growing economically so rapidly that they're getting to a critical mass of people who managed to satisfy what Maslow called these deficiency needs, these three sets of needs. And now they're looking to individuate, in other words, to to, to, they're looking for democracy. They're looking for uh, to express who they are, and you know, it is my belief that you know it, it will be impossible to prevent democracy, some form of democracy, arising uh, in China within the next twenty years. I mean, it happened in Russia. You, they could not prevent it. Okay, we have a very authoritarian form of democracy, but that's simply at one stage in, in in democracy. When we talk about Russia, it's very authoritarian democracy. But it's 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 you know to get to. A liberal democracy, like the most democratic country in the world is Iceland, you know, to get there, you know, it requires um, a lot of uh, work, um, uh, a lot of development, uh, a lot of socialization, uh, taking care of the disadvantaged, taking care of the poor, in order to uh, be able to get that sense that uh, my sense of identity expanded so that uh, unless everybody is taken care of, I don't feel taken care of. And yeah. that's an evolution of consciousness. Yeah, and, and that's, that's to me exciting. You know, you said, that you, you noted about um, Russia being a constrained form of democracy. And, I, and you know, I, I'm in Chicago and there used to be, you know, the Daily Machine, Richard Daly machine which was this political machine that made sure that daily won and it's sort of like um, when those in constrained democracies or radical democracies they start asking themselves does my vote really count does my voice really matter that's that's I think the next step and even in this even in the US you know chair um, uh, political contributions make such a difference to the elections and you know we have this problem right now and it, we don't have time to get into it with which is you know the Supreme Court has said that political contributions is a form of free speech and therefore you can't limit political contributions and you know it's we don't we do not live in the in the US this is not a completely free democracy <laughs> it's not it's not uh, Every every voice counts. It, it we are we are still incredibly influenced by by the media, by by um, by politics, by authority, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So the point being that all of us have room to grow here uh, along this track. I want to talk about personal entropy. Yeah, Can I just, I'm sorry, I'm Philip, sorry, do you mind me interrupting? No, I just no. want to say that I agree with you on that point. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, when you look at the Economic Intelligence Unit, um, I think uh, USA is like a number 18 out of 26 of the dem democratic countries. And the UK, where I am, is is, is about two places different. Yeah. I don't know. And, and I agree with you. The yeah. UK and the USA are not democracies I, as I would like to live in because they've been hijacked. In the in the UK, by the establishment, by the by the upper classes, 
um, and in 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 the USA, it's been hijacked by the rich elites. Um, yeah. So I totally agree with you there. So yeah. let's get to personal entropy. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about that in a second, um, but before we do, and because I don't want to, I don't want to forget this, which is as we move up the levels of consciousness, and I, what what does the last level look like? Okay. So actually, you know, the, if I rephrase your question, what does the ultimate look like, which is a slightly different question, okay. I would say the ultimate looks like being able to operate at every level of consciousness. In other words, you've mastered every level so that you if you're in a survival situation, you know how to master that. If you're in a relationship situation, you know how to master that. And you know how to master every level, and you do so in a way that supports the common good. Yeah. So, it's it, you know, you could say, I could say, well, you know, the, the last stage of development, the upper, the seventh, in the stages of development, is serving serving others. That's where I am. I'm 70 years old. I look like I'm 50. But I, I'm at that stage where I want to give to the world, and I, and I want to... And I just want to serve humanity because I recognize, you know, I'm connected to the whole of humanity. And that's one of the reasons I'm on your radio show today is because yeah. this is part of my contribution. Um, but you see, um, I need to be able to operate at all of the other levels in order to be able to operate at that level. Because if I have a suddenly have a survival need, I, I, I can't, uh, uh, my attention will be drawn away from that level of consciousness, and I have to focus on my survival need. I've got a relationship need. I've got a self-esteem need, and so, so, so what? Ultimately, what does it look like? It looks like you're able to master every level of consciousness and operate at that level uh, in, in a calm, uh, unemotional way, and deal with what comes up for the good of everybody. That's what it looks like. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. I'm speaking with Richard Barrett the author of the enlightening book, The Metrics of Human Consciousness, and we're about to talk about personal entropy, which which is a, a really original um, topic here, Richard, that I'd like you to t- discuss in closing. And just before you do, I, I want to um, sort of compliment you, not only on, on what you just said, but you know your book, um, there's a lot in here, and I really recommend this book because it's sort of the wave of the future. It's short and it's readable and it's also got a lot of take a lot of good take-home messages but this notion of as you get older i don't know whether it's getting older or um or rising in consciousness and hopefully there's a correlation uh, but that serving is sort of at the end and i think that is a great message and you know i i'm not a spring chicken either um but it's to me, I like to think that our lives are mapped against a rise in consciousness as opposed to deterioration. And I, I think it's a, much, it's a much more optimistic way of looking at things. If you, and, and you say, you know, we're beings in the world. Well, that's, that's undisputed. We are beings in the world. If you look at that purely and view it as, as, as something that expands with time, I just forget about the aging thing, and and it, it hasn't completely worked, but it's worked to a degree, and and I think it's a it's a much more healthy attitude <laughs> uh, than to worry yourself, you know, and you know, and just wither away. But that's that's um that's another aspect of the whole thing. Now, 
personal entropy is really an amazing, amazing concept. And I'd like just to ask you, first of all, what is personal entropy and what can we learn from it? So, Philip, you know, you, 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 you've raised so many questions. I'm going to come to personal entropy in one minute. I just want to give you some backup data to confirm what you just said about aging. There is uh, something at the Harvard University called the Grant Study. It's been going since 1938 or so, and they've been following a cohort of people from who were at um, Harvard at that time, and they've followed them right through the whole lives, and they've studied these people all the way through their lives, and the conclusion that they come to is that the most successful people out of that whole cohort was those who learned how to love and learned how to care and made a contribution to society. And, and I'm about to give a keynote speech uh, in a, one of the large business schools here in Europe uh, in week after next. And, 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 I, and I show from those studies, the Harvard studies, that creativity actually can grow. When you grow psychologically in a normal way and grow into soul consciousness, creativity expands and happiness expands. You know, I'm 70, I've never been happier and I've never been more creative in my life because I've, I've actually, without knowing it, I've followed this path. Yeah. Um, anyhow, now let's get to personal entropy. What What is personal entropy? It's the degree of dysfunction that you operate with based on the fact that when you're a child or a young or teenager, you lived in a dysfunctional family. And by the way, we all live in dysfunctional families to a certain extent. And you learned some beliefs about how to stay safe and survive in that family. And they, because your mind or your brain was just growing and developing these uh, beliefs, these subconscious fear-based beliefs about how to stay safe and find pleasure in your environment, got um, uh, got tracked into your brain, uh, synapses or uh, uh, were created, that, that you learned these beliefs in your growing brain. Because the brain, when we are born, basically only has you only have the limbic brain uh, and the reptilian brain the, the cortex there's the thinking is still developing for another seven or eight years so so as it's developing you know, you're a child and you learn how to stay safe and a child and everything's emotional because you don't have the idea you're not able to rationally think and so we, we we form these subconscious beliefs about how to be in the world in order to get our needs met our survival needs our relationship needs and our self-esteem needs now, if you grew up in a dysfunctional family, uh, you the, you carry these beliefs into your adulthood, and this creates um, ways of being in the world. Uh, when something happens in your environment that reminds you of one of these subconscious fear beliefs, your emotions are triggered, and you remember the past hurt. You don't actually remember it, but the emotion is driven by the past hurt and pain, and you shout out, you get upset, you get angry, and that's what that's all about. You're just remembering that past uh, pain. So, so, so... Uh, Personal entropy is the degree to which that you have not mastered these subconscious fear-based beliefs, and we can see them 
so if I say to you, um, uh, I'm going to do a, uh, I'm going to do 360 feedback onto you with the, these 15 people who know you, and they're going to pick values that you operate with, and they can choose positive values or so-called potentially limiting values, um, and, you, and you're not such a nice person as you are, Philip. I don't know you that very well, but I'm sure you're a really nice person. But people pick words like blame demanding, um, jealous, etc. These are all potentially limiting values because they um, they hold you back from becoming more fully who you are. And they're based on these subconscious fear-based beliefs. So if you can if you can find out how many potentially limiting values are in a culture or people see in a culture or people see in an individual you can add up the proportion of votes for positive values against the proportion of votes for these potentially limiting values and out pops a number called entropy. Personal entropy in the case of the individual and, and cultural entropy in the case of a, a group structure, an organization or a nation. And, and let me just say one thing here. If, if you actually want to measure if you actually want to measure your consciousness against these seven levels, you can go online right now to valuescenter.com slash PVA, that's valuescenter spelled C-E-N-T-R-E dot com slash PVA. And within two minutes, you can, of having done a five-minute uh, survey, you can get a, you can get a map back of, of your 10 top values plotted against these seven levels of consciousness so you can see where you are. Anyhow, so that's what, that's what personal entropy is. And, uh, and it just falls out of our analysis uh, of this model and the tools that we use for measuring consciousness. Yeah, I, th I think that it's a really, a really neat concept because, you know, entropy for those in the physics world is another, uh, another way to put the second law of thermodynamics. And the idea is, is to have low entropy because low, low entropy is low disorder. High entropy is high disorder. And so in your situation, or the same thing with fear, you want to have low fear. You want to, you want to reduce your entropy because entropy is, is sort of a, is, is a, is a self-killer, essentially. It, it defeats yourself. And it reminds me, uh, Richard, of one of the challenges we have in our society. A couple weeks ago, I had on the show Greg Lavoie, uh, who used to be in media, and he he turn he mentioned this concept about in media. You know, there's a famous, if it bleeds, it leads. But also, there's another one called if it scares, it airs. You know, we we do have a a, a, a fear-driven media. I mean, at least I'm sure it's the same thing in the UK. In this country, if if it's something that's going to scare people, it's it's on the front page. And, and so we have, I mean, I feel like writing a blog, uh, the title would be, what, we should, what should we be afraid of today? Because, because there's always something more to be afraid of. And so we're fighting. So we're, we're in a culture, I think, Richard, where we're fighting this. At the same time, we're having people, the media telling us all these things we should be afraid about. But this is the kind of thing that is debilitating to growth. So let me tell you why, why this is this happens because it's actually fundamental to who we are. You see, we are so programmed by evolution to attach our consciousness to anything that 
uh, threatens us in any way. So, so uh, when you are so so something that is scary captures our attention before something that is good because it's an evolutionary necessity. So you know you're standing in the jungle and everything's fine and it looks fine and then suddenly you see the leaves move and you see two eyes staring at you and immediately your attention is on that whatever that is. We are programmed. We are programmed to shift that, move our conscious towards whatever is scary, and it's because the media understand that. So what do they put out? They put out all the scuff because it's good for sales. It gets yeah. our attention because that's how we're programmed as animals or human beings or whatever you want to call us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no one said this was going to be easy. Let me put it that way. <laughs> I mean, this is this is not. I mean, I tell people life life is not a bed of roses. I mean, it's and in fact, if you it's it's better if it's not a bed of roses. And by that I mean we don't have a bunch of servants sort of catering to our ever needs, uh, all of our needs. You sort of have to make your own way in life and fight your way through all this. And speaking of fighting our way through, we've just come to the end of the show. And, of course, we left a lot of, a lot of fields uncovered. And um, I, I think, though, that we, we also, um, at the same time, covered a lot of bases here because this is an extremely important topic. Um, and, and, Richard... Uh, first, before I say a couple of things in closing, uh, for those who want to know more about you and about your books, what can what should they do? Well, you can go to a website called Richard Barrett, uh, B A W R E W T, all one word, Richard Barrett.net, and that'll take you through to uh, uh, part of a larger website, which is the valuecenter.com. And from that valuecenter.com, you can find that personal assessment there um, I also have lots of I have four blogs um, but if you go to the richardbarrett.net that'll take you to the page and on the left hand side you'll find my blogs my my books my videos my uh, broadcasts you'll find the whole lot there cool. uh, that's the entry port cool okay well once again um, I want to uh, compliment you on this book and also on what you're doing and to me, the number one take-home message here is that this is real, that we're, we're seeing things like consciousness being measured, being, if not understood, at, at least um, grasped to the degree where we could start putting into the whole stream of human development and human history and seeing that there is something here for us particularly the fact that this rise in consciousness from the individual survival to a global consciousness is something that is a natural process and perhaps one of the things that we need to pay some attention to is doing our own to advance this movement up the ladder. This is Philip Camella. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Join me next week when I'm having Simran uh, the creative visionary and award-winning publisher of 1111 Magazine uh, on the show to talk about her new book. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion with Philip Meriton. To find out more about Philip and his new book, The Heaven at the End of Science, visit heavenattheendofscience.com. 